For those of you that aspire to be teachers, you aspire to be something, or you are something already, perhaps, that comes from God, that comes from His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. We want to honor the teachers. So would you, with me, just pray, and let's just bless these, those people that want to be or are teaching, okay? Heavenly Father, we just come before you. Holy Spirit, you are the awesome teacher of our lives. You instruct, you lead, you guide us into all truth. That's what the scripture tells us. We pray for a blessing on these who would also be used by you to guide those people, whoever they are, that they teach into truth as well. Anoint them with your your spirit, that they would produce an amazing fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I love to teach. It's it's one of the things that, that, you know, really kind of gets my blood pumping. It's just one of, the, it's one of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gave me, and I make no apologies for that. I just love to do it kind of thing. And I can teach tennis, or I can teach my girls how to do math, or it doesn't matter to me. It, teaching, I just love to teach. It's a lot of fun. This is what I love the most, teaching about God, teaching about our relationship in particular to God. You know, one of the prime directives of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is to teach or to bring understanding to believers. John 14, 26 says, but the helper, sometimes in, in, it'll be translated the comforter in your scriptures, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. This idea, this, this truth that the Holy Spirit is our teacher is more important than the most people realize. Without the Holy Spirit teaching and bringing understanding, folks, we are left on our own meager resources when considering what is truth and how to bring that truth to bear on our lives. This is part of what the Holy Spirit does for us. This means, and get this, because this is important, this means that every heresy, a heresy is a lie about the nature or the will of God, okay? This means that every heresy, every lie about the nature or will of God ever taught was conceived by man's intellect apart from the Holy Spirit. Probably never thought of that, did you? Every wrong teaching about God that ever was spoken, written, or otherwise conveyed to another human being was taught apart from the understanding of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is not capable of lying or falsehood. Therefore, every teaching that ever happened about God that was wrong was created apart from the Holy Spirit. Every time a person looked into Scripture and misinterpreted or misrepresented the meaning of that passage or verse, it was because the Holy Spirit was not part of the process, because the Holy Spirit would never lead us into anything but truth. He will teach you all things. John 16, 12 says, I have much more to say to you. This is Jesus more than you can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. We were given a guide into truth, literally all truth. And that guide is the Holy Spirit. All of our modern day cults that were created off a portion of biblical truth were created by people who used the scriptures to justify their desires rather than having their desires created by the truth of scripture. You catch that? 
They were created by people wanting to justify their own desires rather than having their desires created by the truth of Scripture. It doesn't take all that much to twist the truth of Scripture to meet your purposes. Hey, if I want to murder somebody, I can get the Scripture to okay that if I look at just a few words. If I want to hate somebody, Jesus made that really easy for me. If you don't hate your father and mother, you can't love me. Well, now, if I just take that little piece of Scripture, I can justify even hating my mom and dad. When the truth of Scripture is, I'm supposed to honor them, because that was part of the Ten Commandments. You have to understand Scripture in the light of all of Scripture to understand what every little passage is saying. But get this, if you say it, if you, if you perpetrate a false teaching, if you say it long enough, and if you preach it loud enough, even a lie can look like truth after a while. I don't know about you, when I was a kid, I loved cartoons. Anybody like me? I love to watch cartoons. When I was a kid, I still like to watch cartoons. They just made them into movies now. We, got, we went and watched Iron Man 3 the other day, and it was just like, oh, this is so cool. It's, it's comic book, you know, for grown-ups, basically. But I remember when I was a kid, I used to watch Popeye the Sailor Man. You remember? Popeye, yeah. The cartoon character Popeye was famous for what? Eating spinach, right? Yeah. Whenever he breaks open a can of spinach and he eats it, he gains this enormous strength. You know, his biceps get huge, you know. He has a tiny little wrist like me and huge arms, you know. Just totally disproportionate, which was fun. Popeye, folks, was employed by the U.S. government during World War II to promote the idea of eating spinach. You probably didn't know that. Meat was a rarity during the war, but spinach appeared to be a great substitute. Why? Because in the 1890s, a German scientist had shown that spinach contains the same amount of iron as meat does. And iron, of course, is one of the essential vitamins in building strength. Hence, Popeye and his spinach, right? But the facts were wrong. The German researchers did prove that spinach contains iron, but when they wrote down the results, they put the decimal point in the wrong place. They overestimated the amount of iron in spinach by a factor of 10. Unfortunately, the correction didn't get across the ocean to us until well after World War II. That just shows how easy it is for false ideas to get picked up and accepted as truth when they're not. Is it any wonder that the Barner Research Group that does research for Christian organizations discovered that 19% of church leaders believe that Jesus sinned while he was alive? 19%, that's one in five church leaders, not churchgoers, okay, but people who actually lead and teach other people. One out of five believe that Jesus sinned, that he was not the sinless Lamb of God which ruins our theology in so many ways, it's unbelievable. 33% of church leaders believe that Jesus never had a physical resurrection. What does that do for your hope of heaven? Not much. That's one out of three, folks, people leading churches that don't believe that Jesus actually was raised from the dead, one of the basic dogmas of our faith. Get this one. Teaching on the Holy Spirit, this is appropriate. 43% of church leaders doubt the existence of the Holy Spirit. That's scary. That's almost half. 
47%, which is just about half of church leaders, do not believe that moral truth is absolute. In other words, they think truth is relative. If it's true for me, it's okay. If it's true for you, it's okay. It doesn't have to necessarily be measured against the Word of God. There's no absolute truth. I promise you, folks, that they did not learn or come to believe these things because they read the Bible and had the Holy Spirit inspire them or teach them from it. Somewhere along the way of their study or lack of study in the Scripture, they missed Paul's admonishment in 2 Timothy 2.15 to be diligent, to present yourself approved of God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Every believer, every believer, not just church leaders. It's scary because those, re- those stats were about church leaders. But every believer is responsible to encounter God through Scripture with the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. The prophet Jeremiah wrote this to put us on the right track here. In Jeremiah 31, he says, this is God speaking through Jeremiah. This is my covenant. I will make it with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. God is saying here that you need no one to teach you that he will teach each person. The Holy Spirit will give each person a teacher, a personal, indwelling teacher, always there, always ready to lead you into truth. God actually desires to give us a guided tour through life, teaching us all along the way through the work of the Holy Spirit what is truth and how to apply that truth to our lives. Now, what does that do for teachers like me? Well, if you're all supposed to teach yourself, then I'm not needed, right? Well, not quite. Not quite. What you need to do is take and measure what I teach you against the Word of God with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We will all always need teachers, people to instruct and guide us. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does in me and through me. And he'll do that with other people in your life as well. But You are the one that's responsible for the learning part of that because God has said, I have placed my teacher in you. I've said this before and I'll say it again. If all you know of God is secondhand through the teaching of someone else, even if that person is me, then you probably know more about him than you know of him. Understand that? You're getting information, but you're not really growing in a relationship with him if you're not pursuing him on your own. When Jeremiah says, because they will all know me, that word know in the Hebrew word is that funny word yada. Yada means to know intimately, to know intimately. A personal knowing through experience and study of scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration and leading of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit's work in ministry to enable you to understand what Jesus wants you to understand, because he's the revealer of all truth. If we come to Scripture without the Holy Spirit, we're likely to come away with something less than what Jesus planned for us, something less than what is true. Uh, Let me illustrate this. One of my seminary theology books
I want you to think about what this professor wrote in this book because he comes at Scripture with his own particular mindset and he comes to conclusions about Scripture through that mindset. This is what he has to say about some of the work of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about signs and wonders. The miraculous sign gifts were present in the first century to confirm apostolic revelation, but they're no longer to be expected today. This concept is illustrated by a scaffolding principle. When constructing a building, it is necessary to erect a scaffolding to aid in construction. When the building is built, the scaffolding is removed. The sign gifts were the spiritual scaffolding that God used as his authority to build the church. As such, sign gifts were temporary, given to serve a purpose. When the authority of the written word of God was complete, God took the scaffolding down. There are several reasons sign gifts are not consistent with the Christian experience today. First, these gifts were first given as a sign to the Jews. As the church was made up primarily of Jews, signs were necessary to demonstrate that the temple worship and sacrifice were no longer required. As the church entered the age of ministry primarily geared at Gentiles, signs became less important. 1 Corinthians 1.22, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Today, the church is founded on Christ. The wisdom of God is presented in the word of God. Second, during the first century, apostles were primarily communicating an oral tradition, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. The word tradition is not a negative term here. It means the method by which the word of God was communicated, i.e., word of mouth. As a result, sign gifts were necessary to give confidence to the church to discern who was speaking the word of God and what was a message from a false prophet. A third consideration concerning sign gifts is the recognition that prophets and apostles were the foundation of the church. These men were the channel of revelation in that they first received the word of God, then they wrote the revelation by inspiration. To give credibility to what they were saying and writing, God gave them signs and wonders, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. When they passed off the scene, in other words, died out, so did their signs. After the church was founded and the scriptures were written, signs were no longer needed. By the end of the first century, it was physically impossible for living men to be qualified apostles. As an illustration, Paul taught that tongues would cease with the completion of the canon of scripture. Anybody buy that? (laughs) By the way, the guy who wrote this, I love this guy. I learned so much from him. And I still read the book today kind of thing because that's part of honoring what God put in him. So I'm I'm not chewing on him or anything like that. I'm just making a point about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit brought to the scriptures when we study The arguments made here are wonderfully logical from a certain point of view. The problem is that you can't really get to that point of view by reading Scripture. You have to bring that point of view to the Scripture. The whole scaffolding illustration is wonderful if you're building a multi-story structure. It, however, assumes that the church, being the structure in question here, is or was completed. It is not. We're not done yet. As far as I know, the church is still being built. We're still being fitted together, according to Hebrews, like a building. So we're still under construction. So from a construction standpoint, which I happen to know something about, you don't remove the scaffolding prior to the completion of the project, or you render the project incapable of ever being completed. See, the argument works the other way around. 
We can't complete the building of the church, which is all of us, okay, without the scaffolding. Therefore, the signs and wonders, according to that illustration, are actually needed. If you take them down, nothing gets done. That being said, the scaffolding thing, well, that's just a story. What about the scriptures that he, he talked about in his little argument against the idea that sign gifts still exist today? Well, the first scripture that he references here in this argument comes from 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. It says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. The argument being that we don't need signs and wonders because we're part of the church age, which is Gentile in nature or Greek in nature rather than Jewish in nature. So we don't need signs and wonders because, well, only the Jews needed that, and we're really in the church age, which is more of a Greek thing. As if Greek people, I guess the way Greek logic works, were only ever interested in logic and reason and information and wisdom. For that matter, guess what? You don't need to be Jewish to desire supernatural intervention by God. Think about this, okay? Just, just, oh, this is like so funny to me, okay? This is like, whoa, you missed the point here, okay? Isn't it the point of every believer who prays for something that only God can do? Isn't that the point of desiring something supernatural? If I'm praying for something that only God can do, then I'm asking for something that's outside of the natural. Otherwise, I'd be able to get it done, Right? So every believer, no matter their ideas about the supernatural or not, signs and wonders or not, actually pray for them, right? So why are we saying that we don't desire those things because we're in the Gentile age or the Greek age for that matter? That's a weird argument. Basing theology on something like that is just flat out silly. And it's not at all what the passage was even about. Listen to the full passage that that little excerpt, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Listen to what the whole passage actually says. It's really fascinating. It starts, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Jews, well, they demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But, see, he left this part out. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God stronger than man's strength. Brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise, at least not by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. Therefore, it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, get this next part, because this is all one passage, okay? When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with elegance or superior wisdom. I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, 
For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, if you're going to use portion of Scripture to prove that the power of God, supernatural power of God is not necessary, that was probably not the right passage to use. Because Paul is saying, I didn't do this. I didn't come to you with persuasive words. I didn't come to you with logic. I came to you with supernatural signs and wonders. Verse 22 is not talking about a need for signs and wonders to be replaced by learning and wisdom. Not at all. What it's talking about in verse 22, when he, when he says the Jews wanted miraculous signs and the Greeks were looking for wisdom, he's talking about the disposition of people towards the truth of Jesus Christ. Folks, it takes faith to accept truth because without faith, it's impossible to please God. People who needed signs and wonders, they didn't want any room in their life for faith. That's why Jesus told them that Hey, they wouldn't even believe if he raised somebody from the dead, which he actually did several times. People who want everything explained, people who want everything logical and understandable, like the Greek mindset, they're not any different. They don't have room for faith either. Paul's answer to both in verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Then Paul goes on to give a solid reason as to why signs and wonders will not only remain, but they're needed. Verse 44, my message, my preaching, were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may rest not on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Folks, there's no mention in this passage that the need for supernatural signs and wonders will ever change. It's always going to be needed. I would submit that the use of 1 Corinthians 1.22 was unfortunately taken completely out of context in this situation. And it's not the interpretation that would be supported by the rest of the passage, so it can't be something that's supported by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have taught this. The second argument here is that signs and wonders are only needed to authenticate the authority of the apostles as men speaking from God in the time before the scriptures were written, i.e. The, the oral tradition. The problem is that the very same verse that he uses here to talk about the oral tradition talks about both oral and written tradition. Second Thessalonians 2.15 says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. <laughs> Using oral tradition to or signs and wonders, the necessity of, of signs and wonders to authenticate the oral tradition, uh, he just missed the mark because you need it to authenticate both. Both are in the same passage. He just left that part out. Again, the verse doesn't support the argument and can only be bent in that direction by introducing a predisposition that needs to find arguments to disprove the existence of modern-day signs and wonders basically trying to make the passage say something that it doesn't say. The third thing, it's asserted here that the apostles were the foundation of the church. That is actually quite true. 
Ephesians 2.19 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. It is also true that signs and wonders were part of the ministry of the apostles, although the passage used by the writer here is not saying anything like that. 1 Corinthians 12.11 is what the author cited, and it actually says all these works are the work, all these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. That didn't say anything about the apostles, so it's really hard to form an argument that signs and wonders aren't needed based on the idea that the apostles were the foundation of the church, and now that they're gone, they, we don't need that anymore. It doesn't make sense. It's funny because the full passage that he quotes here is actually about spiritual gifts and the spiritual gifts that were given to the body of Christ, not just the apostles, which makes the writer's assertion that all these signs and wonders passed away with the death of the apostles completely illogical. Paul wasn't even talking about the apostles, and he never says anything about gifts ceasing. Lastly, the writer makes the argument from Acts 1.22 that in order to be an apostle, one needed to be a witness to the life of Jesus on earth. In this passage, he uses Peter, and Peter's talking about replacing Judas. Judas hanged himself after the crucifixion of Christ. He hung himself in shame. So Peter, in talking to the rest of the disciples, the men who would eventually be called the apostles, says we, we need to replace Judas. We need to, to have that number, that 12. And, you know, it makes perfect sense when Peter does that, that he will want somebody that had been there and walked with them from the beginning, right? So this is what it says, actually, in Acts 1, 21 and 22. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men that have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. That's very descriptive of what was on Peter's heart. However, it is not necessarily prescriptive of what an apostle means or who is qualified to be one, which is the argument that's being made here. The argument being made that the apostles passed away and we can't have any more apostles anymore because we don't have anybody that lived during Jesus' lifetime and experienced Jesus on earth. That doesn't actually work with Scripture very well, that argument. There are, in fact, other apostles mentioned even in the New Testament that we have no such qualification for. Think about this. Romans 16, 7, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, not anywhere around Jerusalem, okay? He's writing to people in Rome. As far as they're concerned, that's on the other side of the world from where they live. This is what he says. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. There's two apostles mentioned there. I think it's a fascinating thing because if you read your Bible and you're looking at anything other than the King James Version, you're going to see Andronicus and Junius. The Junius was changed to a male gender name because somebody didn't like the idea of a woman being an apostle, but the original text was that it was a woman, Junia which means apostles can actually be women too, okay? 
There is no man or woman in Christ Jesus, right? No slave, no free, no man, no woman, okay? There's no rules on that kind of stuff. That's just, a, that's just two people, okay? There are more than that. Uh, Acts 14, 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, did you get that? Barnabas is called an apostle, not part of the 12, okay? But still an apostle, For that matter, Paul is called an apostle here, and he wasn't part of the 12 either. To claim that it was physically impossible, which is what the writer in the textbook I read to you, physically impossible to be an apostle after the first century based upon the idea that an apostle had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly ministry flies in the face of even Paul's credentials, and he wrote most of our New Testament. Without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit guiding us when we approach Scripture, folks, we can come up with all kinds of weird things, all kinds of strange things. My favorite of the bunch here, you know, that he's talking about is the writer's assertion that all signs and wonders will pass away in much the same fashion as Paul said that the gift of tongues would pass away with the completion of the canon of Scripture based upon 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 11. Most of us have heard 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 11. Did we have this read at your wedding? We might have. I don't remember if that's what, what Cherokee, Cherokee's not here to, to tell me whether or not. But this is, a very, this is one that gets read at a lot of weddings. 1 Corinthians 8, love never fails. Heard that before, right? But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, the writer of of my theology book here, he asserts that the canon of Scripture is represented here by the words, when perfection comes. Okay? When the Scripture is completed, that's perfection in his mind. Okay? It's a very Greek idea, by the way. Knowledge all contained in Scripture. Okay? That's the perfect thing. Unfortunately, it's a leap of logic and faith that is astounding. You can't get there unless you decide, apart from the verse itself, that you want to try to discredit signs and wonders from existing in the church today. And so you bend the verse to your mindset. You also need to ignore the passage as a whole. Because listen to the passage as a whole love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. For now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Now, folks, if perfection means the completion of the New Testament scriptures, the canonization of the Bible, as the theology professor would put it, the writer asserts then this about what Paul is saying. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. 
Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be known fully, even as I'm fully known. Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. The context here isn't scripture. What would Paul be saying? He became a man when scripture was canonized? I mean, that's how that would read. It's, 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 a, it's a strange thing. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Tongues, they will pass away. Uh, where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when, and this is what it says, but when perfection comes, okay, let's, let's put it in his words. But when scripture is canonized, when we have the Bible, okay, complete, then the imperfect will disappear. That would be signs and wonders. Those are the imperfect, I guess, in his mind. The imperfect way of of displaying God. I don't know about you, but that's that's a leap of logic I, I can't quite follow. Paul becomes a man when Scripture is canonized. He, he, he stops being a child when Scripture is canonized. He stops thinking like a child. He only sees poorly now, but when Scripture is completed, then he'll see God face to face. Now he knows partial truth, but Scripture will be complete truth, even as I am fully known part. That really doesn't work here at all. Do you know what does work, though, with this passage? It's, really, it, it's, it's one of the most amazing, beautiful passages in the Word of God. And it and what works without changing the context of the passage. It works if Paul is saying that one day, one day, folks, tongues is going to pass away. It will. On that day, on that day, it will pass away because I, Paul, will have been made completely mature in Christ. I won't need it anymore. All my striving for wisdom... That'll, that'll pass away too. I won't need it anymore because when I am complete, when I am matured in Christ, fully complete in Christ, then I'll be able to see clearly because the imperfect, looking through that shadowy veil, that part will be gone. I will know fully and I will be fully known by God. Folks, that speaks of the day when Paul anticipated standing in heaven before his Savior seeing him face to face, being made like him, which, by the way, happens for us in the twinkling of an eye. Made in God's image, restored to perfection, just like in the Garden of Eden before man fell. Let's face it, signs and wonders, including but not limited to tongues, will not be needed in heaven. That's when perfection comes. If one can infer a timeline for the passing away of signs and wonders from this passage, then the only possible timeline that you can come up with is when we're all in heaven. That's the only time. Until then, signs and wonders ought to be still around. Otherwise, we do damage to the understanding of the full passage. Now, please don't miss why I went into all that stuff, because there was a lot there. I realized probably the longest illustration I've ever preached in my life. I did that. I went into all of that because we're talking about the Holy Spirit bringing us in to all truth. Folks, he is our teacher. When we approach Scripture without him, we can come up with all manner of teachings that do not hold water. 
Now, I love my theology professor, and I've learned tons from him. And I'm not saying that he's got everything wrong because this part just doesn't make any sense. I just, I view it as somebody who came to Scripture with a predisposition to say, hey, these things don't exist anymore because I don't experience them. Therefore, I need to figure out a rationale to dismiss them. He just wasn't very successful in doing that in my mind. It doesn't match Scripture. There are a lot of things that I bring to Scripture, folks, that are my own, what the theology calls prolegomena, your own thought process that you come to Scripture with, okay, that probably aren't right, and I end up with wrong conclusions too. So I'm not ragging on my professor. I love the man. I think he's brilliant, okay? We all have areas we need to grow and change in, and I've been changing in this area because quite honestly, you know, seven, eight years ago, I believed him. But I've just come to, to, to see Scripture differently and to approach it differently today. And in this area, we, we wouldn't see eye to eye anymore. But still, make no mistake, I honor the man because he is a great man in, in, in Christ. I'm not trying to, 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 to bend that down or, make, or diminish him in any way, shape, or form. What I am trying to say is that even brilliant men, even men of God that are studied and learned, when we bring something other than the Holy Spirit to our understanding of Scripture, when I come to the Scripture with my own mindset about who God is, I can make it say almost anything I want it to say. I can figure out a way to rationalize and justify my own thoughts through Scripture. Like I said earlier, I can figure out a way to hate my mom and dad. It doesn't take that much work to twist the Scripture. That's why we have so many cults that have a glimmer of truth in them but for the most part are preaching a God that doesn't exist. We need to be under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in order to make sure that every verse that we read is understood and interpreted for us and applied to our lives for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Pulling Scripture out of the Bible to prove your point is not letting the Holy Spirit lead you into truth. It's trying to go the other direction. So this is what I want you to do with this information. The Holy Spirit is your teacher, so I want, you to, I want to invite you to try something this week. Maybe you've never done this before, or perhaps you've done it for a while. But this is what I want you to do. I want you to sit down, and I want you to read just a chapter, just one chapter in the Bible. You can pick any chapter you want to. I don't recommend the book of Leviticus, okay, or Deuteronomy, which is the law all over again, okay? That might be a little hard for you to get through. You might want to stick with the New Testament, okay? But just sit down and, and pick one. Just read one chapter. But before you start reading, ask the Holy Spirit to help you, to lead you and to guide you into all truth. Think you can do that? Ask him to open your eyes to see Jesus, the heart of God, to see it more clearly. Ask him to open your heart and apply truth where it's needed most, and then read. Find your passage, then go to the Holy Spirit, ask him to lead you, ask him to guide you, and then read. If you will do that, I promise you, he will begin to open up your eyes to more and more things more and more truth, and that truth will rock your world.
I know that for a fact because, folks, it rocks mine. The things of God are known only through the Spirit of God. They are spiritually discerned, interpreted. The Spirit gives us understanding, and He alone can make God's Word real and relevant for our lives. That really is the secret of having the Holy Spirit grow you into Christ-likeness. Invite Him into the process. Go to the Word of God and invite Him to instruct you through it. And you'll see things there you never saw before. Happens to me every week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you've given us, number one, a revelation of who you are through your scriptures, but mostly through Jesus, who is the perfect representation of who you are. And Holy Spirit, it is your desire, your passion to connect us with the person of Jesus through the scripture and through personal encounter with him. Open our eyes and help us to see that this is what you desire for us and have us approach scripture with that truth in mind and bring you into the process with us. So the things that we gain from Scripture are gained based on your guiding, your leading, and the truth that you would have us to understand for our lives. And Father, I know that if we will do that, then you will instruct, you will guide us, because you will, re you will write your words on our hearts, just like Jeremiah said. In Jesus' name. Amen.